Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, this is Nick Gelso, co-owner and founder of CLNS Radio. Today's podcast is brought to you by lynda.com. lynda.com is the home of expert video tutorials. Because you're such a loyal listener of CLNS Radio, and it's 2015, you want to kick the new year off in style, claim your free trial today from CLNS by going to lynda.com slash CLNS. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash CLNS. Now on to your regularly scheduled program. Patriots Nation, and welcome to another edition of Patriots Beat here on the CLNS Radio Network. I am your host, Jeff Kane, at Boston Fat Guy on Twitter. Joining me, as always, is Bobby Kravitsky, at Bobby underscore K91, also on Twitter. You can follow the Patriots Beat podcast at, at Patriots Beat, and for you Facebook fans out there, www.facebook.com slash Patriots Beat. And you can follow CLNS Radio at, at CLNS Radio on Twitter and on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash CLNS fans. Today's podcast is brought to you by the good folks over at lynda.com. Get out and challenge yourself today. Get your free 10-day trial, www.lynda.com slash CLNS. And, of course, our good friends over at Peak Brewing. Mm, beer. I love beer. Uh, we'll be joined by John Cadoux. Uh, the founder and head brewer of Peak Brewing. He'll talk a little bit about uh, the beer that you can find by Peak Brewing. It's organic, it's tasty, it's great. We'll also be joined tonight by Mike Loiko of Any Patriots Draft, their editor and head scout. Mike always has some great stuff this time of year as the NFL Draft is but a few weeks away, four weeks actually. Uh, Bobby, what's going on tonight? I'm doing good, Jeff. It's starting to feel more and more like spring. We got March Madness, and of course, like you said, we're getting closer to the NFL draft. You know, I really need Duke, and I know we have a lot of Dukies out there that listen to this show, but I really need Duke to lose to Michigan State uh, because I had uh, had Louisville making it all the way to the finals. So I need Duke to lose to Michigan State, Kentucky to win uh at all and then maybe just maybe i have a chance of winning my uh my office pool we'll see what happens i'm out in mine i had arizona winning the whole thing couldn't go with kentucky so hey why not i'm rooting for you uh you gotta go with john calipari even though you know he was stripped away of his uh final four berth when he was here with the minutemen of umass 
Uh, it was a little bit before your time, Bobby. I was a, a spry young teenager when uh, when the Minutemen were making their run in, in March Madness. But, uh, you know, I, I've always been a Calipari fan. He's kind of an asshole, but, you know, I like him. No big deal. But let's get talking a little uh, Patriots and uh, the NFL draft. We'll bring Mike Loiko on. Well, joining us on the line right now is Mike Loiko of NEPatriotsDraft.com. He is kind enough to give us his time. As with last year's first of a three-part series, We'll hit him up this week, starting to talk about the NFL draft, move on about the week before the draft to get the things how they're going, and then after the draft when we kick back and look at what's happened with the New England Patriots and as they shape their roster for the 2015 season. Mike, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me back on. It was fun doing this last year, and I'm looking forward to doing these podcasts again. Well, we really appreciate your time. We look forward to your work, and I really look forward to your draft magazine, which, what's come out in about a week or so? Yeah, I'm actually finishing it up right, uh, and it's in the next couple of days. Um, it just takes a while. I'm waiting for all the, the pro day data to come in, um, finishing up the last 10 or so profiles. I think there's going to be about 270 this year. Um, so the last guy, I think I finished number, I'm up to like 255 tonight I finished. So, yeah, within the next week, and then it's going to proofread it and add all the pro day data in there, um, and then it'll be ready to buy um, for whoever wants it. People, I got a good response from it last year, so um, I'm hoping people enjoy it again this year. The best part about your uh, your draft guide is the fact it's so recent because you go out there, and I have always got the you know the Pro Football Weekly one. I've gotten the Street and Smiths, mm-hmm. um, our lads, all those, but – they're all taken around the time of the combine. So by the time you turn around and get to the draft, all that data is so old. So many different things have happened. Your stuff comes out great. So, Mike, I'm looking forward to that, and we'll be pushing it out to our listeners. Here Thanks. we sit now. You know, here we sit a month away from the draft. The Patriots have pretty much closed up shop on free agency. Uh, they, of course, are rebuilding their secondary. They've lost uh, old Stallworth, uh, Vince Wilfork. Their third down running back in Shane Vereen. They've brought aboard a good pass rusher in uh, Jabal Sheard, a good tight end in Scott Chandler. What do you feel are the number one, number two spots that the Patriots are going to need to fill in the 2015 draft? Yeah, yeah, I think they've positioned themselves pretty well to go into the draft without, you know, one glaring need that they have to address in the first or second round. Um, I think the obvious one is right now that's unsettled is the offensive line, um, the guard situation right now. I think they they might even have people on the roster that they're penciling in at guard, but I just think for the public um, it's a little bit unsettled because we don't know what the plan is. I, I do think they address the guard position at some point early in the draft. Um, Belichick really doesn't like to draft guards early, but we'll see what happens depending on who's who's available on the board. But um, I think defensive line, I think they still need a big defensive tackle. I think linebacker depth is a huge area of need um, with Hightower and Mayo's health and doubt heading into the season. Um, they really have nobody behind those guys that can play starter-type starter minutes or snaps. Um, and I still think they need another wide receiver. I think, you know, they made some inquiries to guys this offseason um, and they've missed out. Nobody that really breaks your heart missing out, but I think they, they need one more receiver that they can rely on, somebody that adds another dimension. I think they still need to add a little bit of speed to the wide receiver spot and maybe a little bit of size. 
I'm, I'm not going to be one of these guys that's going to be relying on Aaron Dobson or Josh Boyce or even Brian Timms heading into next season. So I think wide receivers are a little bit unsettled. Um, and then cornerback position, um, they have a lot of bodies there. It, it remains to be seen how they use those bodies. And that's a position that I'm sure they'll address at some point within the first three rounds. I'm not sure if they're going to do it in the first round. I'm really not even sure what type of cornerback they're going to be looking for yet. But um, I I don't think the cornerback spot is as bad right now as people think it might be. Um, I just think they're going to play a different way and defense a little bit differently next year. Mike, speaking of the cornerback position, the name that most people are now attaching to New England is Byron Jones. Is that who you see the Patriots taking, or do you have them selecting someone else? Um, I think that's a hot name right now. I think he probably would be of interest to them. Um, his explosion and agility numbers are off the charts. Um, but he, he's not one of these lockdown man-to-man, um, in-your-face cornerbacks. When you watch him on tape, um, he played a lot of off coverage for um, UConn. Um, yeah, I can see. I, I think the most attractive thing about Jones is that he's played multiple positions. He's a smart player. Um, athletically, he checks the boxes for them. It's a tough year to evaluate the cornerbacks because there's such a variety of them. I mean, if you're looking for um, man-to-man guys and you're looking for guys like Trey Waynes and um, Marcus Peters, if you're looking for zone corners and it's like Kevin Johnson, guys like that. So it, it just depends on what the Patriots are looking for. Jones is definitely in the hot name right now. They were at the UConn Pro Day. I think it's a people link Jones to the Patriots because they picked Darius Butler out of UConn a couple of years ago. But they're much different players. Jones, for me, um, I think he'd be in the mix in the. I, I think he's in the mix in the first round. He's a smart guy and he's got great intangibles. Um, obviously, his fluidity and his movement skills are great. You know, for the negatives, for me, he had a bad shoulder this year. Um, he's not as twitchy as you would think for somebody that that explosive. Um, he's a taller and kind of narrow cornerback, so his hips aren't as fluid um, as you would think for the guy that's that, that explosive. And he's he's not very physical. He's not going to get in your face and really press you and and challenge you on every on every pass. So um, there are questions with him. His production at the corner, you know, it's okay. It's not great. I mean, I think he only had five interceptions throughout his career. Um, a handful of pass breakups each year. So, you know, he has question marks. He's a great athlete, but, you know, I think he'll be in the mix. I'm not sure if they end up taking him, though. Mike, last year there was a offensive lineman from Florida State that was my draft binky. The mm-hmm. Patriots ultimately ended up taking him in Brian Stork. I talked about him at nauseam, yeah, and he did. ended up being a great player. <laughs> yeah, I did. I really did. He ended up being a very good player for the Super Bowl champion Patriots. This year, it's another Florida State player, only on the other side of the ball. Defensive tackle, Eddie Goldman. Uh, didn't have the greatest of pro days. Ran a 5.340, uh, 19 repetitions at the 225 bench press. But this is the type of guy that I think comes right in and can step in and fill that big body role that Vince Wilfork did for so many years. Your thoughts on uh, Mr. Goldman? Yeah, I like I like Goldman a lot. Um, the 19 bench press reps it really surprised me because uh, you would think he'd be a little bit more powerful than that. But he, he is a massive defensive tackle, a five-star recruit coming out of high school. Um, really, has played fantastically for Florida State the last few years. Uh, this past year, I think he 
Um, he definitely outshined guys like Mario Edwards and the bigger height guys. He was the, really the glue on the, their defensive line. Um, he's massive, huge thickness throughout, you know, toward upper body, torso, and legs. Um, you can two-gap, and I think you can probably one-gap a little bit. So he offers that kind of versatility that Vince Wilfork has allowed them, where you can put him on the nose um, to eat up space, but he's also not just a load that um, is going to sit there and just clog up the middle. He can move a little bit for size, even if it's 40-yard dash time doesn't really show that. Um, he plays with leverage and power, so he'll push the pocket. He'll drive defenders back to reestablish a line of scrimmage. Um you know, I, I think he he's going to be is he is what he is. He's not going to be a flashy player that puts up sack numbers or makes a lot of plays. Um, whether he fits what the Patriots need, um, you know, his intangibles, his how important is the game of football to him? Um, I don't know. I know his weight's gotten kind of sloppy the last few years. I think conditioning's been an issue with him at times. Um, so I, I know I know they're down there in Florida State a lot, checking out those guys. They have great. Uh, inroads with the coaching staff, so I'm sure they're going to get all the intel. I do think when I do my mock, I haven't done a mock in a while since I've been so focused on my book, but when I, when they, when I do do a mock, he's definitely going to be one of the players that's in, in the mix for that 30-second pick, depending on if I have him go with the defensive line position. Mike, as we anticipate the book coming out, I'm curious, which player surprised you the most between looking at his tape and then seeing what he did at his pro day and at the Combine? Well, uh, that, that's a tough question. Um, I think at, in terms of a disappointment, I think Paul Dawson, TCU linebacker, was a huge disappointment. Um, running it in the four eight, uh, the way he plays, he plays fast all over the field, aggressive attacking style. Really, all the TCU defenders were disappointing. They all ran really slow times. Kevin White, the cornerback, who's a pretty good player on film. Chris Hackett or Stacy, who makes a ton of plays on film, was one of the slowest safeties. So, you know, I'd say the TCU player, Dawson, was a huge disappointment. Not really sure where he's going to go. Um, I think Shaq Thompson, too, for me, is a little bit of a disappointment. I thought he'd run a little bit faster. I still really like Shaq Thompson. And, you know, he's a guy that people aren't talking about in connection with the Patriots just because he's not a big physical linebacker that they like. But Belichick's always looking for players that do unique things and fill multiple roles. And I feel like a guy like Shaq Thompson from Washington, who, since he didn't run as fast as people thought, probably has a good chance of being there when the Patriots pick. And I, I'd say that's another player just to keep your eye on because he can play um, in nickel, he can play in sub-packages, he can cover, um, play on special teams, use him as a running back if you need to as a as a big safety. I just think he's a unique player that, um, really loves the game of football and will do anything for the team. So that's a player I keep an eye on, too. And speaking of Thompson and all the different ways you can use him, what do you think he primarily is? Is he a weak side linebacker? Is he a safety? Is it just as simple as a guy who can do a lot of different things? How do you think he'll be used primarily in the NFL? No, I don't think he's a safety anymore. I think he's bulked up too much. Um, and he's not as fluid and quick as you'd like out of a safety, especially in this in the NFL nowadays. Um, after his freshman year, I probably would have said differently. His freshman year, I was talking to a scouting director or, or uh, one of the scouts that that scouts for uh, University of California, an advanced scout. He said that Thompson was the best safety prospect he's ever seen after his freshman season. Um, but I think he's gotten too big. Um, and filled out too much. So I think he's a weak side linebacker and really just a nickel linebacker that's playing sub-package, 
um, off-the-line player, um, not really a pass rusher. He'll blitz. He can add, add value as a blitzer, but he's not going to be an edge rush guy. I just think he's a, I think he's a nickel linebacker, whether you play him in the middle, on the weak side, wherever. I think that, And that has tremendous value in today's NFL. Um, as you know, the Patriots rarely are in their base defense. Um, and, and I think having an athletic linebacker that can cover and drop um, is tremendously valuable. And I think the Patriots will be looking for one of those in the draft. One of the things, uh, of course, we all know about the Patriots is that they've lost Revis, they've lost Browner, they've lost what some people believe to be the ability to play a man-to-man defense, and they look to be beefing up that front seven. There's a name out there, and it's Bud Dupree, the defensive end linebacker out of uh, out of Kentucky, six four, two sixty nine, runs a four five six forty. Any chance he's there at thirty two, or do the Patriots possibly move up and trade up to get this guy? No, I, I'd be very surprised if he's there now. Before the combine, the pro day, I, I think I had him going to them, him going to the Patriots in my first or second mock. But you know, after putting up those explosion times and that type of speed off the edge, it's going to be tough for him to make it there. And you know, after doing more homework and digging into him some more, I'm not really sure if he is a Patriots type player. Um, he fits the measurables. He's definitely the athlete they're, they're looking for. But in terms of his discipline, his rec- play recognition, his awareness, um, his coachability, and his, I think his overall football IQ. I just don't think that that checks the boxes that the Patriots are looking for. Um, that's not to say that they wouldn't draft him if he's there. I just don't think he's a player that they're going to go out of their way to draft, especially now that they've added Sheard. I think the the need at edge rusher is definitely lessened because now you have Jones and Ninkovich who play 90% of the snaps. Ninkovich's snaps will probably come down slightly with you know, Sheard mixing in wherever. Um, so I just don't th- I just don't see the snaps there on the field for a first round outside linebacker. The one thing we need to keep an eye on is the Patriots always, or at least in the last four or five years, have drafted a year in advance. And it's really interesting this year because when you look at the Patriots' free agent class next year, there's not too many names that are unsigned. They're going to pick up the option on Jones. They're going to pick up the option on Hightower. That really leaves only Nate Solder, who's unsigned, heading in. I'm out the big guys that's unsigned. And then you can get into some of the safety guys. But um, I think if they pick an offensive tackle in the first round or even the second round, I think that's going to give us the indication that they're not sold on Solder. But – um, it's going to be interesting to see where they go because they always pick a year in advance and there's no screaming need where it says they're going to be weak at this position after another year. I guess cornerback could be in that mix too. So um, that's why at this point I'd be leaning corner in the first two rounds over pass rush. Well, that brings up an interesting name on, on my book. Now, you had just said that uh, Dupree might not fit the Patriots' mm-hmm. measurables not not on on as far as size goes, but as far as his mental capacity for the game. Yep. A guy out there that piques my interest, but you wonder with what's going on is Marcus Peters, the cornerback out of Washington. Um, you know he's been suspended. Uh, he's had some run-ins with uh, with the coaches. What is your your thoughts on Marcus Peters, and could he possibly get to the Patriots, and would the Patriots decide to take him? Yeah, I think he could be there at 32. I I think it's just a tough year to project overall because, um, at least for me, I I don't really have a feeling who's going to be there and who's not because I just think that there's, I think there's a finite number of first round picks this year and it's probably in somewhere in the teens and then after that it's going to be just a free for all with teams valuing guys differently. 
So I think the second half of the first round is really going to be off the chart, like chaos this year with teams just going off the board and picking guys they like. So, yeah, I can definitely see Peters there. It's tough. I mean, he's a good player. He's a, he's one of the only – at the top of the draft, he's one of the, the better man-to-man corners. I think he can play you know, most coverages that you put him in, um, but he certainly has the aggression and, aggression and physicalness to play man-to-man. I think that's what he's going to be best at. I just have a very tough time thinking that Bill Belichick's going to use a first-round pick on a cornerback that got kicked off his team, not for smoking weed or, you know, getting in a drunken fight, but for insubordination because uh, he couldn't get along with the coaching staff. I think that would have to be a reach. Um, I'm told, really, though, that the Peters run-ins aren't as, you know, bad as it seems. I think he recognizes that he was uncoachable, and he I think he was just overly loyal to the previous staff, and he didn't like the way – that Chris Peterson and, and his staff was using him. So it has to be vetted. But um, if they're if they're dead set on getting a cornerback in the first round, then they're going to have to consider him because, you know, in my opinion, there's only four, five, maybe six corners that, you, that are worthy of going at the end of the first, early second round. And Peters is definitely one of them. Mike, we know the draft is unpredictable and the Patriots are as hard to predict as any team but they have nine picks, including six mm-hmm. in the first four rounds. So do you see them trading up and perhaps maybe even, like Jeff said, in the first round? Yeah, I think I said this on Twitter a little uh, couple weeks ago. I, I really do see them um, being aggressive in this draft. They have nine picks. Two of them aren't tradable. Their third-round picks not tra- – or their second third-round picks not tradable. And their seventh-round pick, the comp- compensatory picks not tradable. So – that top of the fourth round pick's valuable. Their first third round pick is going to be valuable. Um, they have three picks in the span of five. That's great draft capital. But there's no way they're going to use nine picks. There's not nine roster spots on this team um, to fill. And they, we saw what happened last year is they, they draft some guys late and they have to cut them just because there's not enough um, roster spots to go around. And when the Patriots cut draft picks just because of the Patriots, they're going to get picked up by other teams. That's just the way it works when you're the Super Bowl champions. So I don't see any way they use nine picks. I think we're going to see something similar to what they did in 2012 where they identify guys that still are need and that are at the top of their board, and they're going to go up and, you know, not move. I'm not saying they're going to move up into the top ten. I think that's very unrealistic. But into the top of the 20s, like they did with Jones, and then maybe into the mid-20s, just somewhere around there to get a guy they like, jump leapfrogging teams that they're going to be competing with, like the Denvers, like the Colts, um, the Packers, in the Saints picking right right in front of them now, I think they're going to be able to jump up six, seven spots and get a guy, whether it's a cornerback. I think a lot of teams in the 20s are going to be looking for cornerbacks or defensive tackles, I think, or an offensive lineman, I think. But those three positions in the 20s, I think we'll see a run on them. So I I do expect them to be moving up um, in the first, and then maybe even in the second round again. I think they're going to be aggressive on the first two days of the draft. I really do. Well, they definitely hit a home run in 2012 by trading up not once but twice for Jones and Hightower. Both of them huge uh, impact players for this team. Be great to see the Patriots get up there and add another impact player in the first round. Mm -hmm. But let's get off the first round because everyone knows the names that are sitting there in the first round. Right now I'm looking at the Patriots and I'm seeing two spots that are a little weak. Uh, One happened to be guard. Connolly mm-hmm. has not resigned yet. Um, as you said, Belichick doesn't like to draft guards very high. In fact, I think the last one he drafted in the first round was Logan Mankins. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
hit a home run last year with uh, Brian Stork. Looks like a good pick in the tackle in Cameron Fleming. Who's that interior lineman that we could see in the third, fourth round for the New England Patriots that might uh, might turn some heads? Uh, that's, it's tough to say that. If I think if they take a guard, I think he'll probably um, be somewhere around the second round. Uh, the guy in Dante Skarnicki was down there today, or yeah, whatever, yesterday, I believe, with South Carolina. I think E.J. Cannes a guy that really um, would – I think he checks most of the boxes that the Patriots look for. A long-term starter. Um, he's plug-and-play at left guard. He's played left guard his whole career. Well-rounded. He's, a, he's strong in the run game. Strong anchor and pass protection. Um, cuts off inside moves well. Uh, good leader. I think he checks all the boxes. He can play in the Patriots system. I don't see any any reasons why he's you know first size. He's pretty mobile. Um, so the transition I don't think would be difficult. So for me, that that's the guy I'm really keeping my eye on for a guard. Um, as you move further down, I think you know the kid from Hobart, Ali Marpet. I think the the way he plays the game, the technical ability he has, the kind of hard nose, um, just all out blocking style. I think that, that fits with the Patriots too. But I think he's almost become a little bit overvalued at this point. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my draft board right now, and it's tough to say when you get down to the sixth and seventh round guys because they all have some sort of flaws, but. I just really think if they're gonna if they're serious about plugging the starting starting job on their offensive line, they're gonna have to do it in the first few rounds. I think there's some in the first two rounds. I think there's a ton of players that fit them well. If they're gonna move up, you know, move up for a guy like Lyle Collins, who's a left tackle. But I think if you put him at guard, I think you know the sky's the limit. He can be a, an All-Pro player pretty quickly in the NFL. Um, Brandon Sheriff. He's probably going to be out of range, but, you know, you never know what's going to happen. If he falls down, they move up for him. Same thing as Collins. I think he becomes uh, an all-pro guard pretty quickly. Um, and I think Cameron Irving, I, Florida State, I think Irving or Can, I think both those guys are 1A and 1A and 1B in terms of the left guard prospects for the Patriots next year. Both guys project to go in that. I think Can probably goes in the second round. I think Collins um, – Irving goes off the board somewhere between 25, uh, 22 and you know 35, right in the Patriots' range. Um, he's never really played left guard, but if you can play left tackle, center, I, I don't see why he can't play guard. Um, so that that's the guy I'm really watching to see if they go after him. They drafted Stork last year on the same program, coached by Rick Trickett, um, the line coach at Florida State. So. The, the scheme translates, the way they learn the playbook translates, the system translates. Um, he's the guy I'm going to be looking for. Mike, moving to the defensive line, two players who figure at least to be available when the Patriots are picking are Carl Davis and Jordan Phillips. The latter seems to me extremely talented, or at least in terms of potential and upside, just a question of motor and what his work ethic is. Mm -hmm. How do, how do you compare those two, and which one do you think would be a better fit for New England? You know, I'm I'm really not high on the Carl Davis train. You watch him on tape last year. I mean, he was great at the Senior Bowl when I was down there, but you watch him on tape at Iowa last year, and you know he was pretty bad. He didn't. I mean, he didn't really make much of an impact um, in terms of splash plays and, and game changing plays. Um, he's a guy that. For as good as he was at the Senior Bowl, he should have been a lot better in games last year. So that raises a flag for me. Um, Phillips is a is a boomer bust guy. He 
he's kind of in that Will Fork mold, and then he's a huge, massive human being that really moves well for his size. I mean, he runs well, he closes well, he moves laterally. They even drawed him into some zone blitzes at times at uh, Oklahoma. Um, it's just tough for me, but I just I've tried projecting both the guys for the Patriots. I'm just not sure that either guy's a fit. Davis, I think, is more of a three-four. In my opinion, is more of a, a two-gap guy in a three-four system. I just think, um, even though he looked great at the Senior Bowl, his tape has really turned me off, and I've had a hard time buying back into him. Um, you know, he just the production and the conditioning late in games just scared me away from him. I just I just think his his play awareness, his recognition gets moved out and moved off of plays really easily last year. And I'm not, and we know that with Ferentz, they're going to know everything there is to know about Davis. When I talked to him at the senior bowl, he thought of himself as a first round pick. Um, he thought highly of himself. So maybe he just took the senior season off thinking that he was going to cruise through. But ultimately I don't think he goes in the first round. Phillips, I think probably goes in that range just because he's a rare type of athlete. But I have I do have a tough time seeing the Patriots pick Phillips as well. Going out to the NFL draft as a whole, um, Winston and Mariota don't exactly ring luck in RGA3 to me. Um, I don't see really either one of them being a franchise-type quarterback. In your eyes, which one of them has the best shot to be successful at the next level? And with what team would that be? I think both. I honestly think both guys can be successful. I really do. I think the only way Winston's not successful is if he's his own worst enemy and continues the behaviors that he that he showed at Florida State. Um, I, I thought for Winston, I thought if he landed in Tennessee, I thought that was the ideal landing spot for him. A small market outside his home state where. Um, the media attention isn't going to be as bad. It won't be as bad in Tampa either, but um, being that close to home and with the similar fan base as he had in Florida State, um, that could be a difficult transition. But I think Winston, you know, if you take away the -the off-the-field stuff and his high turnover rate this year where he tried to put the world on his shoulders and really just win games for Florida State um, by making, you know, he just tried. He tried to win games by himself at times and make every throw where his decision making really suffered. Um, I think what he showed as a freshman, um, winning the national championship, making big plays in clutch situations. Um, he he just has something for me where he just makes the plays when they count. When the biggest when the game's on the line, you know he's going to make a play to win. He did it time after time. Um, he makes all the NFL throws. He goes through progressions. He he'll, he's willing to check down, even though his decision making as a senior wasn't or uh, this past year wasn't that great. I, I think with coaching and playing within the system, I think he can be very good. So I, I would pick Winston number one. Mariota, I, I think I think he's going to be a very good quarterback. Um, obviously, the negatives for him are just the transition from the NFL game. Um, he never played under center at Oregon. Never huddled. Um, rarely reads the whole entire field and really makes pre-snap judgments and knows where he's going with the ball um, before he even takes the snap. And, you know, that's tough to transition out of when he gets to the NFL game. So I think Mariota, I think he's Mariota, and I do believe Mariota goes to Tennessee at number two. I've said that all along. I just think it makes too much sense for them. They have no face of the franchise player. They have no quarterback. They have a coach who's very good coaching quarterbacks. Um, they need a quarterback, and they're not going to get another opportunity to get a guy like this. Um, 
at least this year, there's no other starting quarterback anywhere close to Mariota um, out on the free agent market this year or really next year, um, unless Phillip Rivers or someone like that hits the market. But, you know, that's tough to foresee. Um, so I think if Mar- I think if Mariota goes to Tennessee, I think he'll be successful under Wismont, although I think it will take a little bit longer. Mike, I understand what you're saying there with Tennessee and Mariota and why it makes sense. But I also want to ask as a follow-up, given that Wisenhunt prefers pocket quarterbacks, and that's not right now at least, certainly it's early in his development, but that's not what Mariota excels at in in present Mm -hmm. time. So does it still make sense systematically? Yeah, I think Mariota can be molded into whatever quarterback that Wisenhunt wants. And Mariota, the throw-first quarterback, he's not – a guy that looks to run first and throw second. He can throw the ball. He's got a good enough arm. Um, I saw enough arm talent at Oregon to train. And I, I think with the NFL game nowadays, you don't want these guys that just that can just stand in the pocket that are 6'5", immobile, um, and just drive it down the field. I think we're seeing the transition in the NFL game to uh, not the option like the Johnny Manziel guys, but guys like the Wilson who he can throw the ball down the field, yeah, but he can create with his legs if necessary. And I think I think Mariota is in that type of mold. I think he's going to be – we hear the comparison all the time, but I really believe that his worst-case scenario is going to be like a Colin Kaepernick who maybe he doesn't put up 30 or 30 touchdowns a year, but he can put up 20, uh, not throw many interceptions, and rush for like 600, 700 yards um, and keep the defense honest with their defensive ends having to protect against the zone reads. I just think – and I think that's valuable. I think if you're Tennessee, I just I just don't know how they can pass on a potential franchise quarterback where out of all the teams in the NFL, they don't have a franchise – a face of the franchise more so than any other team. Like when you think of the Tennessee Titans, who's, their, who's the face of their franchise? Probably Jarrell Casey, um, a decent defensive tackle. I mean, they need somebody bad, so – I think when push comes to shove, um, even though the you know Wizenhut system isn't prototypical for him, I think they they just pull the trigger on him. It's not just for um, the sake that he's a quarterback and he'll sell tickets. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. For the record, on Tennessee taking Mariota now, a player who Jeff and I, some of our colleagues here at CLNS Radio, are interested to get your opinion on is Oa Odigizua the defensive end from UCLA. So what have you seen from him both on tape and in terms of the numbers he's put up at the Combine and Pro Day? You know, I've been a huge Ojigizua fan for since his freshman year at UCLA. I, I was tweeting about him a long, long time ago when um, no one really even knew about him. So I've been a long fan, and it's gotten to the point now where I think he, he's gotten so much buzz lately that he's become overrated. I think he's a very good player. Um, I think he's going to be a good player, but I think he's being overrated a little bit. Um, the, the problems I have with Odigizua, um, he's a tweener, and I'm not sure where you're going to play him. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to rush the passer enough to be a base 4-3 defensive end. I'm not sure that he's fluid enough to be a stand-up outside linebacker in a 3-4, and he's not really big enough to be a 3 technique in, in a 4-3 defense. So um, he's kind of about a position he's a, the things you got to love about him are his his physique is just fantastic he's rocked up solid um you gotta love the way he plays the game he plays all about um his versatility even though he doesn't have a strict position his versatility is going to be key 
I, I, the thing, I just don't know for if you're going to be picking him in the you know the teens or early 20s with the guys that are going to be on the board with him. I'm just not sure if he rushes the passer enough. I think his and also his hips are a huge concern in the NFL teams. I've known I've heard that straight um, straight from scouts most that um, he's had some serious injuries in college. I'm not even sure if his hips are going to get um, passed on some teams' draft board. So. That's another thing to consider, but he's a great he's a great kid. Um, he plays with power. He's physical. He can play on the edge. He can penetrate. Um, he gets to the backfield really quickly to disrupt. Um, I just think there's some flaws there, and I'm a huge fan of his, but I think he's gotten to the point now where people have started to overrate him. So um, it's kind of disappointing to me. I was hoping that maybe the, the Patriots team would be able to get a chance at him in the second or like third round or starting the year, but I think his stock's gotten too high where um, I, I just don't think – I think he's going to be a little overrated if he goes in the 20s. Is it wrong that I'm sitting here and, and rooting that we don't draft him so I <laughs> don't have to try to pronounce his name for the next 10 years? It, it's actually not as hard as you think. And his first name, and he just goes by Oa. So And then it's just really – I just broke it down to Diggy Zua. So, oh, Diggy Zua. Um, but when I was sitting across interviewing with him, it was very, very nerve-wracking trying to say his name without mispronouncing it. He's, he's an intimidating individual when he's sitting across from you. Final question for me here, Mike, and thank you again so much for your time. Uh, when I'm not watching Patriots football on Sunday, uh, it's the Sea of Red and the Nebraska Cornhuskers for me on Saturday afternoons. Um, Abdullah. I would love to see the New England Patriots draft that running back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I think the thing that's going to turn the Patriots off is his pass protection. Um, watching him at the Senior Bowl in in on tape in Nebraska, he's just his pass protection's pretty horrific. Um, I'm not saying something that can't be coached up or improved, but with his style, you're hurting me. <laughs> he's just not. With Shane Vereen, I mean, he's. I, I know people are going to compare Abdullah to Vereen if they picked him, but Vereen's a huge, strong. And Abdullah put up a great bench numbers at the combine, but um, Vereen just has more thickness to him. I think. Um, I just think Abdullah's pass protection is a thing that's going to turn off the Patriots. I love his game. I do think he's going to be a good NFL back. Um, he's, I don't think he's going to be a lead back, but as a combination with um, a more powerful back, I think he's going to be a very good player. I just think if we're talking running back for the Patriots, I think Mike Davis from South Carolina, um, he can be the powerful back and he can play on all three downs. Um, supposedly he ran like a 4-3-8 at, the, at his pro day. I'm not really sure. Uh, and some of these pro day times are just, just crazy to even hear them. Um, you can't really even take some of them seriously. But I think a guy like Mike Davis is pushing 220, um, runs fast, can catch the ball and pass the tech. But I think Abdul is going to be a good player for some teams. Uh, I'm just I'm actually really interested to see where Abdullah goes because I think he's going to be um, just as productive as he was at Nebraska. Mike, there's a player on the roster that seems to excite the team, and that is Tyler Gaffney. If he does, in fact, make the team, what do you expect out of him this season? And could he possibly be one of the players, along with White and Cadet, who fills that Shane Vereen role? Um, probably not. I'm I'm gonna really set my expectations low for Tyler Gaffney. I've I've been in the past. I've overrated guys like Armstead and Jake Ballard who have missed years, and I I hyped them for the next year or two. And 
can't wait for them to get back on the field. Um, so I'm setting my expectations really low. If he makes the team, then then we'll see. But he has a lot of competition. I think Deion Lewis is going to be in the mix, too, for them. I know Lombardi loves Deion Lewis, um, and he missed this whole year with injury, so they're kind of stashing him. Um, but Cadet, Cadet intrigues me. I think his pass catching skills are really good. But Gaffney, Gaffney is a solid player. He's faster than people think. He runs extremely hard. He breaks tackles. Um, determined, high character kid. So I, I do think he's going to be in the mix. But I, I just don't see him as a as an option to replace Shane Vereen. If anything, um, he's more of an, a Stephen Ridley role for me. Um, than a Shane Vereen role. Shane Vereen's really, in, in, towards the end of his career with the Patriots, he was strictly a pass catcher, and I think that's kind of what Cadet is. Cadet rarely ever carries the ball. So if we're comparing apples to apples, I'd say Cadet's more of a uh, Vereen replacement. But I just think this draft is too deep for the Patriots to come out, come out of it empty-handed. They're going to be sitting there in the third or fourth round, and there's going to be a great running back on the board that's going to be able to come in and make an impact. Um and that's the thing with the running back class in this draft. There are running backs of all types. There's pass-catching backs like Abdullah. He's a fast pick back. He's a home run hitter who's not very good in pass protection. And then there's guys like Mike Davis, who's a big, powerful back but catches it well. Then there's guys like Duke Johnson, who's just so determined and aggressive as a runner. Um, guys like Gordon and Gurley, who both are like in the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of power and elusiveness, um, and just all types. So whatever need, whatever type of running back the Patriots are looking for, they're going to be able to find it. It's just a matter of how high they're willing to go to get it because they're going to have a shot at almost every one of these running backs in the draft. Mike Loiko of NEPatriotsDraft.com. You can find him on Twitter at NEPD underscore Loiko. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll catch you again in a few weeks. And everyone, get ready for his draft book. It is a must, must buy. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. No problem. And Mike Loiko's time here on Patriots Beat was brought to you by the good folks over at Peak Brewing. Want to know a little bit more about Peak Brewing? Well, why not bring in the man, the myth, the legend, the brewer himself, John Cadu. Well, joining me now is John Cadu founder and head brewer for Peak Brewing, and we're going to have John talk a little bit about his excellent brew, his beer. It's just phenomenal. I've uh, had a few of their nut browns in the last couple of days. John, how are you today? Doing great, my friend, doing great. I feel like I feel like a full disclosure is in the works, too. You're enjoying a nut brown as we speak, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I am enjoying a nut brown as we speak. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's nothing wrong with that, John. Why don't you uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got your start um, with Peak Brewing and 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 the, where the the dream became a reality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know we're we're a bunch of um, you know friends and uh, brothers. You know, a lot of the the group of people that all started Peak. We all went to a summer camp together, actually in New Hampshire, uh, on Lake Winnipesaukee, so not too not too far from you, and kind of grew up together. And then, yeah, over the years, um, a lot of us became home brewers, always passionate about beer, um, and, and frankly, a lot of us are foodies too. Always, always been really passionate about food. And so, you know, during our days home brewing in college and right after college, um, you know, a lot of us really started noticing, hey, our favorite restaurants 
are all using, you know, ingredients that are grown locally from small family farms. And, um, and I guess we always thought, God, you know, we, we noticed the people that were making that, um, making that, uh, you know, basically dedicating their menus to that kind of ethos. We're also just serving the best food. And so we, we found that, hey, from, from a foodie standpoint, we are frequenting those places the most. And then, you know, we just kind of thought, hey, well, it's interesting. No one's really doing this on the beer side. There's a lot of locally brewed beer, but there's not a lot of guys that are actually sourcing ingredients locally. The restaurants that we know that are sourcing from local small family farms we love. So why don't we start looking for you know, local barley, local wheat, local hops, see how that stuff is. And we started doing that, you know, on our home brewing batches. And, um, you know, we were just floored by the quality of the grains that were being grown here in New England, the hops that are being grown here in New England. And uh, we started incorporating those into our home brews. And we just, we just kind of thought we were onto something, honestly. Um, the beer was tasting awesome. And we knew this was a unique proposition. I mean, literally at that time, especially, but still even today, nobody was, was dedicated to sourcing ingredients locally like that. So we thought, geez, Louise, people are loving this beer. We're winning a whole bunch of homebrew competitions. Um, maybe we should, you know, take the leap. And so, yeah, seven, a little over seven years ago, we took the leap and um, started peak and it's just been going, it's been going great. I mean, the wind has been in our sails with everybody you know, as all the listeners sure know, uh, yeah, the whole you know, supporting local, supporting small family farms in New England is a super important thing. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's sort of our mission. That's our ethos. And, um, it's been pretty well accepted. Well, exactly. Now the home brew market really kicked off in the nineties. Uh, I was just turning 21 when it really started to kick off. So I myself have, uh, brewed a few batches at home uh, with my friends from Fermentation Station that used to be in Meredith. So that's where I got my uh, local um, local ingredients. But tell I, me, I, what was the... I, I, I swear to God, my second homebrew batch uh, I bought from there. So my first one I bought in Vermont. But, yeah, I would go there all the time. I'm forgetting the guy's name that used to run Fermentation. When I, when I went there, it was Meredith. And it didn't it move to another town? Yeah, it's now in Ashland now, Ashland, but it was, yeah, yeah. it's in Meredith, and uh, and forgive me, I forget his name when I, I go in it, there. I think it's Steve, is that right, Steve? Uh, Steve I think Steve was the original owner of gotcha. Fermentation Station. Gotcha. Now I think it's Paul, actually, That's that hilarious. runs the place. That's hilarious. But, what a uh, great shop that was. Great job. <laughs> what, was the, uh, what was the first beer that you guys went uh, public with? Public, like commercial, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Commercial. Yeah, commercial. Uh, it's the beer that you're drinking right now, Peaking Up Brown Ale. That was the first officially, you know, commercially for sale beer that we ever did. But uh, we were homebrewing. Our first homebrew we ever did was a, uh, it was a pear pale ale. So the pale ale infused with some pears. And we finished it off. And it was um, it was very very sweet and very very flat, and we were kind of confused. It was kind of it was tasty, but it didn't really taste like beer to us. Uh, but we were drinking it, giving it to some friends, and we got we got high marks on it. But but people kept saying like, God, this is really sweet and delicious, but it doesn't taste like beer. Anyway, long story short, 
we found the yeast packet in the back of the fridge and realized that we forgot to add that. (laughs) 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 Our very first homebrew batch of beer was completely unfermented. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was before we went, you know, pro and commercial. That was many years before that. So yeah, by the by the time we started selling beer to the public, um, we learned the simple lesson, which is uh, yeast critical you to need, making beer. You need the yeast. Good <laughs> good yeast really brings out the beer. You know, so many people know hops and barley, but it's the yeast that that gives you the carbonation. It's the yeast that gets everything going. Let me ask you, let me ask you this, um, your process. Now, where are your, where are your breweries located? Yeah, right now, uh, Portland, Maine. Um, and then, yeah, the way it started is on a home brewing basis, we started in Vermont and then our first, you know, we, we first sort of scaled up to kind of more of that five barrel range, actually in New Hampshire. And then once we started getting into kind of like those bigger commercial scales, um, Portland, and then yeah, that's been that's been home ever since. That's excellent. Now te- take me through a normal day at the Peak Brewing facility. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you know, there's you know it's everything. For, you know, every day you know there's beer being brewed, but also fermentation being monitored, and um, you know bottlings and keggings happening i would say you know when it comes to us versus other breweries i'd say the one thing that's really really different about us versus um you know maybe some of the other guys that 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 people might know about is we spend a lot of time and frankly have a bunch of people focus and myself i would say i spend most of my time on this um you know getting out there and visiting farms in the region um you know i'd say where a lot of other breweries just sort of you know, order ingredients from from ingredient brokers or ingredient distributors. We buy direct from the farm. We it's important that we know our farms, so we spend a lot of time out visiting our farms um, and working with them and um, working on contracts and talking about projections and monitoring quality and things like that. And so I'd say for Peak, yeah, that's the one. That is the one big big difference between what we do and maybe what, what, what other um, brewers do is there's a lot of peak time, energy, manpower resources um, put to going out and visiting our farms because yeah, we, we've just found that for us anyway, that's the key to what we do. It's the key to our mission. It's the key to our quality is finding great, great growers in the region and working very, very closely with them. So what you're basically saying, John, is anytime you take a sip, of peak brew you're basically taking a sip of new england absolutely every single bottle i mean there's no exceptions it's not like we make some beers that are brewed with locally sourced ingredients you know every single keg every single bottle those are those are local ingredients and um it's something we're proud of it's not easy um and it's not cheap but it's it's the reason why we got into this and uh it's something we're extremely passionate about that's excellent. Well, tell the listeners where they can uh, find your website, where they can find your beer. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're uh, we're peakbrewing.com, P-E-A-K brewing.com, and right there on our site um, is a uh, is a little link that's called Beer Finder. Um, and so yeah, you can just go on there, enter your zip code, and find stores um, near you. And yeah, we we've, we've been really fortunate enough to have great distribution on peak. And so, you know, I'd be shocked if 
if, if anybody went on there and put their zip in there and didn't find someone selling it in their town, I'd be surprised. Well, as everyone that listens to Patriots Beat knows, I broadcast from the Lake Winnipesaukee area in New Hampshire. I went onto your website and found 40 places uh, in a 30-mile radius where I could go find your beer, whether it be on tap or in the store. So that's a wonderful thing. John, we're heading into the summertime. Let me ask you this. What is your favorite thing to drink your summertime brew with uh, as far as eating? Oh, as far as eating. Yeah, well, I am, you know, I'm biased, right? But, you know, being a Maine-based company and living in Maine, um, I just, um, I am a seafood fanatic. Uh, It might sound trite, but I just love it. And so, yeah, we have a beer that we made called uh, Peak Summer Session. And it's it's a really light, drinkable wheat beer, perfect for the warm weather. But we use some really interesting citrusy hops in there. Um, we always joke uh, with Peak Summer Session, it's, it's sort of a sort of a, a summer wheat beer meets a West Coast pale ale. So it's basically a very hoppy wheat beer, and it it almost tastes like the citrus garnish is like built into the beer. And we designed it basically to pair with seafood. Um, and so yeah, whether we're sitting down in heaven. Um, a lobster, some some awesome fresh local catch, whatever it is. Um, Peak summer session is just my favorite pairing with that. The citrus character in the beer pairs awesome with seafood. So what you're saying is unlike some other summer beers out there that people drink and they go out and they fruit their beer, whether they use a lemon or an orange, with your beer, you don't have to fruit it. Yeah, we, what we noticed, you know, hops, there's, you know, the explosion of new varieties in the last couple of years has been so exciting and, and something that we've noticed, you know, the hops that we love the most are the ones that have these like, you know, fruity, citrusy characteristics built into them. So, you know, I feel like 10 years ago when people thought hops, they thought bitter. And now when beers are hopped well, they don't need to be bitter. Um, they can be floral, um, citrusy, grapefruity, those kinds of things. And so, yeah, we use a lot of hops that have these natural citrus characteristics to them. And so, yeah, you're 100% right. It Just by using those hops, it tastes like you put a, you know, a lemon garnish in there, an orange garnish in there. And those, those are the hops that we love the most. Well, John, final question for me is going to be, you have quite a few selections here of your beers on peakbrewing.com and many different places that you can buy it throughout New England. What is your favorite beer that you brew? I got to say, um, I do love Summer Session at the end of the day. And so, yeah, I think, uh, as everybody probably knows who's listening to this, in New England, especially after this winter, um, you know, we just dream about these summer months. We always joke here, you know, in Maine, we basically have, you know, six, seven weeks of summer. <laughs> and uh, they're my favorite weeks of the year. And Summer Session, the beer that we brew, always reminds me of, yeah, just great days outdoors with friends and family, enjoying the bountiful seafood options that we have here on the coast. And um, it's just a beer that no matter when I have it, I always think about, you know, my favorite times in life. So I would say Peak Summer Session, my favorite beer. I can't wait to give it a try when I'm on the boat this year on uh, Squam. That's where I keep my boat up in Holderness, New Hampshire. So I'll be on Squam this year drinking a couple of your uh, summer sessions. I can tell you that. I love it, man. Squam is my absolute favorite lake in the world, hands down. Well, this is uh, John Cardew, uh, head brewer and founder of Peak Brewing. 
He's been kind enough to give us some time here on Patriots Beat. John, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Anything you'd like to say to the listeners before we let you go? No, guys, thanks for the time, and um, yeah, go Pat. A big thank you to John Cadu for joining us. If you want to know a little bit more about food, wine, beer, all that other stuff, check out Beats and Eats, Nick Gelso and Ty Ray's podcast. It's sure to get out the best of every foodie out there. That was some great stuff there uh, about a great beer. We've had a great show today, Bobby. Uh, of course, Mike Loiko joining us, bringing the knowledge, the knowledge that he brings us uh, of the NFL draft. Uh, I highly rate uh, Mike as someone that is a must-follow on Twitter, um, N-E-P-D underscore Loiko. That's L-O-Y-K-O. He's a funny follow, especially on game days. Mike wears his heart on his sleeve when he watches the Patriots. I just, I, I really love uh, listening to Mike. And as I said, his draft book, uh, we'll definitely be putting out the link when it becomes available. Um, it is extremely in-depth. Uh, and, and the best part about it, as I said earlier in the interview, is the fact that it's it's recent. It's within two or three weeks of the draft when it comes out. So it, it's not like, you know, going down and, well, I'm old school. I go, I still go down to the bookstore and buy the buy the magazines and the Arlands books and stuff like that to 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 get the draft uh, guides. So big stuff there. What was your thoughts on uh, the interview with Mike Loiko? Yeah, and I'll tell you the other thing about Mike is including those passionate tweets on game day. The fact that they're so detailed, he does a great job of really giving you insight into a player, or in the case of a game, into a play that just happened. So you're definitely going to learn a thing or two from Mike when you check out his draft day book. Exactly. And, you know, I, I'm going to disagree with Mike, and I'm allowed to disagree with Mike, even though he watches a lot more college film than I do. I don't see Jameis Winston or Marcus Mariota doing anything really? in the NFL. I, I, I don't. And, and listen, they're both extremely, extremely talented kids. You don't get to this level without being talented. I think Jameis Winston has the chance to, you know, make every single um, throw in the NFL. But as Crash Davis uh, once said in the uh, um, in, in the movie Field of Dreams, I'm not Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, right? <laughs> Bull Durham, yeah. <laughs> all those Kevin Costner baseball movies, yeah. thousands. They all just blend in. But as Crash Davis said in Bull Durham, uh, you know, he's got a million dollar arm. I wonder what's going on with that ten cent head. I mean, there has been issue after issue after issue with this kid. You throw a couple million dollars at him. I mean, how is he going to get any better? I just, unfortunately, I don't see it. I see him becoming this year's, you know, Johnny football. I'm not that, not that their, you know, issues were the same, uh, you know, uh, Johnny Manziel, of course, in rehab and stuff like that. I just think that he's not mature enough to move to the next level. And when it comes to, uh, Mariota, unless he gets into that Chip Kelly system, I don't see a fit for him. I, I know you said Tennessee, and, and Mike did as well. Uh, they like Mettenberger, um, and, I, and I see them going, um, you know, in a different direction. I, I, I just don't see Mariota being – he's never played under center. You know, and, and everyone says, oh, I hope he doesn't fall to the Jets. Man, I hope he falls to the Jets no. because he's going to stink up the show. Listen, he is—he's not NFL ready. I think. No. I think that's <laughs> obvious, but the talent is there. And whereas Winston, the only question is 
what's between the ears with Mariota, that's not even a factor at all. (laughs) So I certainly think this is someone who you can bring in, and as long as you're patient and allow him to grow, you don't throw him into the fire, I think you're going to be able to produce a high-quality quarterback out of him. Well, we'll see. He would be best to sit behind behind someone for, you know, a year, two years to to learn how to take a snap under center. I mean, I've taken as many snaps under center as he has in, in, in at the pro level <laughs> or in college, really. <laughs> and and I, let me just say this right now, Bobby, I was one hell of a flag football quarterback. Jeff, honestly, I would have guessed running back. No, 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 no. See, in flag football, you have to be fast. I don't know if you realize this or not, but I have this little weight issue. That's why I call myself the Boston Fat Guy. So you were like the so, Jared Lorenzen out there. Yeah, I mean, oh, man, Jared Lorenzen, man, the Kentucky quarterback. Oh, yeah, that guy, 6'2", 275. Oh, he was my hero. But, no, that was the thing. You know, flag football, you got to be fast. Well, I'm not exactly fleet of foot. But I can throw the ball a country mile, not very accurately, but I can throw it a country mile. So, you know, I, I led us to a couple uh, championships in the flag football uh, leagues, you know. It wasn't too bad. Sure, it was, you know, the 30-plus, you know, year-old people, and everyone was old and slow. and <laughs> But still, it was it was pretty good. I, you know, pumped my own tires here. I was going to ask what happens when they get to 7 Mississippi or 10 Mississippi, but I guess that wasn't a problem for Jeff Kane. No, you know, they used to call me old Twinkle Toes. <laughs> I'll post, you know, I will post a video. Oh, I'm going to need that. a video of, uh, of a, a long bomb that I threw that went for a touchdown. It was, it was, it was awesome. It was really nice. Probably the only completion I made over 20 yards. Patrick uh, Shankow would be having a field day, uh, you know, with my completion percentage over 20 yards as, as you know, with Tom Brady. I was the dink and dunk quarterback. There's nothing... Nothing to be ashamed of there. Nonetheless, it sounds like your arm was better than Tim Tebow's. Oh, <laughs> I could throw a spiral. Let's there, just say that. Point Jeff Cade. <laughs> Tim Tebow trying to make a comeback with Chip Kelly. That's probably not going to happen either. But uh, lots of good things going to be happening over the next few weeks here on Patriots Beat. Uh, you know, it's glad to be back. We've had a, a tumultuous couple of weeks uh where we haven't been broadcasting on our regular schedule, but some big things coming up. Uh, we will announce next week a new sponsor for uh, Patriots Beat and the show itself. It's uh, uh, For you fantasy football fans out there, you're definitely going to want to uh, listen in to who we're partnering up with. Uh, that's a big thing coming up. Uh, you know, moving on, everything, moving up to the draft. Uh, of course, um, uh, Sam and uh, Billy and... Uh, who the heck? Oh, <laughs> I forgot Patrick. They'll be coming out with their new. Uh, they'll be coming out with their new mock draft coming up next week, so that'll be uh, excellent as we get ready for the NFL draft. Uh, again, coming up on April 30th. Uh, CLS Radio is your place to go for everything when it comes to the NFL draft. Live tweeting during the draft. Patrick Shankauer is definitely going to be doing that. He loves doing that sort of stuff. And I'm sure that uh, all the other guys will be doing it as well. We'll be giving you the draft coverage as best as we can. Of course, you want to check out all the other beat shows. Patriots beat, of course, is us. Uh, Celtics beat doing some great things. They had Jackie McMullen 
on their last uh, podcast. A great guest there. And, uh, of course, Red Sox Beat, they do a very good uh, job over there. Um, but, again, uh, thank you for everyone who listens to Patriots Beat here. We'll be back again next week. Uh, check your local time and listing for who we get uh, for a guest. It'll be a good one, I can promise you that. Uh, for Bobby Kavitsky, I'm Jeff Kane. This has been Patriots Beat. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. Sports Talk Radio, CLNS Radio.